your YouTube feed is crap. Stop wasting your time watching bot-boosted shills and self-appointed gurus cloying for your attention. Instead, join the Goslings interview, live stream, and podcast. The Goslings, a dark-lit digital speakeasy of free thinkers. A super chat of radical truth-seeking wizards who eat trolls for second breakfast. Topics that'll make your mama's hair stand on end. Ideas that'll make your pastor's knees knock. Guests that will illuminate the hidden chambers of your mind. And interviews that strike down the darkness. Welcome to The Goslings. Um, there seems to be a strong correlation between addiction and creative personality types. I know that there's an, a direct correlation between nicotine usage and ADHD, but I was wondering, what are your thoughts about the relationship between being addicted to something, whether it's alcohol, drugs, tobacco, and being creative? Ah, it's a great question. And uh, yeah, let me just ramble on a little bit here, John. Yes. It's like... Uh, First of all, I should say I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. You know, I could be. <laughs> don't anybody do anything I say. You know, because of what I say. But I do. I think you're absolutely right. And um, I think, you know, the theory of resistance with a capital R from you know, which says that uh, um, there's something in the human psyche that that resists doing the work that we know we have to do, finding our real calling being, you know, right. We're, we're always, there's an element in our head that's going to push us, distract us and push us into something else. And I think a lot of times that something else becomes an addiction, right? If we're, in other words, rather than write, we drink, you know, rather than create our art or follow our calling, we get into drugs or abuse of others or porn or any of the other things, yeah. self-dramatization, you know, you <laughs> can be addicted to so many things. And I'm serious, really, John, yeah. really, absolutely. And yeah, I think there's, there's an absolutely direct connection there. And, um, uh, like the addiction becomes a kind of shadow version of the art or the work that we really should be doing. Mm. You know, um, for instance, if we should, if it's really our calling to write the drama of heavenly realms or whatever, and, and we haven't, and we're not able to raise the courage to face that or to face that on an on a ongoing basis, we might instead create drama in our lives, you know? And it's like, where am I gonna score my next, you know, hit of whatever the latest drug is? What terrible neighborhoods do I have to drive into at, mm. you know, three in the morning? What dangerous people, unstable people do I have to deal with? Lots of drama, right? You call mm. up your brother at three in the morning, oh, five guys just beat the crap out of me. You know, I'm in a, you know, come and get me, right? Or I'm in jail or whatever. Yep. So um, <laughs> the the addict, in a way, sort of her or his addiction becomes their shadow version of the novel or the movie or whatever it is that they should be should be actually writing. 
Um, so my own theory is that if somebody is, a, is, a, is in the throes of addiction to something and are trying to get their way out of it, it needs to be replaced by something else. And what it needs to be replaced by is whatever their true calling or vocation is. Um, I know I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it to you again. Um, directly above my house here, if we looked out this window here, right up the hill is a house that used to belong to um, Billy Jack. Uh, really? Remember that movie? Did I Have I told you guys this story? No, you haven't. I don't think I've no. heard this. You remember the movie Billy Jack and its follow, its sequels? Yeah. Um, it was Tom Laughlin was the guy. Anyway, Billy okay. Jack was a huge hit. And Tom Laughlin was uh, the actor and producer who put that movie out. Bear with me. This is kind of a long story. That's yeah. Right. And, uh, but he also was a kind of a renegade Jungian therapist. They sort of evolved this on his own. And I actually, you know, he had a seminar up at his house and I went to it, you know, like a two day thing, you know, and what he taught was, People who were really sick, like terminally ill, like they had been to every doctor on the planet, they finally would come to him. And what he would say to them, uh, he might say something like, uh, let's say it's a woman, she's 83 years old and she's got some horrible cancer. He would say to her, did you ever have a dream, like when you were young, an aspiration, a calling? And the woman would say, well, you know, I always wanted to be a concert pianist. And when I was a kid, blah, 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 blah. And he would say to her, okay, start right now. Go back to the piano and be serious. If you have to rent a grand piano, get an instructor, bump it. In other words, reconnect with the dream. And what he was really saying was, as it gets back to addictions, was that the disease was a shadow, ver was had happened because they didn't face their calling, didn't pursue their dream. And so instead, mm. that energy turned into a tumor. But that mm. energy could also turn into an addiction. And the yeah. bottom line was that people would, like, say the lady would start playing the piano again, and her cancer would go into remission. Yeah. And so, mm. in other words, I think when we have the, a dream or a calling or whatever it is, and we don't act on it, this is our soul talking to us, right? We don't act on it. That energy doesn't go away. It doesn't just vaporize. It turns inward and it turns negative. Yeah. It has to find an outlet. And that's, I think, a lot what a lot of addictions are. They're the shadow version of, of a real calling that we should do. And while I'm blathering on here, I'll say one other thing, you guys. The, one of the big differences between an addiction and a, and a calling is that an addiction produces instant gratification. As mm -hmm. soon as that needle goes into your arm, you feel great. Your troubles go away. But a real calling and a vocation is the exact opposite. It is about delayed gratification. Yes. It's about working for three years alone in a room before you finally produce, you know, your novel or your movie or your album, which then goes out and completely fails, right? In other <laughs> words, it's, it's, it's the pain, but that's the reality of life that yeah. anything that's good requires pain. 
and requires effort and requires, you know, a level of commitment. And, and the things that are easy and that immediately gratify you are always bad. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's my part of my answer about addiction. That's really great. I always, you know, uh, because, you know, we're, we're Christians and I'm, and I sometimes wonder about things. I'm always thinking about, you know, things of the spirit and how they might manifest physically, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in the, in the physical world. And I, I ponder those things and I've, I've, it's nice to hear you, you know, speculate on that because I've wondered if some manifestations of illness have been something that we've been repressing or yeah. something negative inside that we don't deal with that decides to manifest in a different way because we weren't we weren't following something that we were supposed to follow or yeah. dealing with it. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of the things that we might call evil, the root of them is actually good. But that good thing has been channeled, you know, blocked and ch- and it goes into a bad channel. Yeah, it's um, well, you know, energy can't be created or destroyed, only yeah. transferred or transformed and nature abhors a vacuum. So, I mean, yes, 100 percent to everything you're talking about, Steve. Um, you know, if you don't if you don't take that thing whatever that is, and take that energy and use it the way God, the muse, you know, whatever wants you to use it in that regard, it'll mutate. It absolutely just, it becomes corrosive, like true cancer, you know, cancer is good cells that just mutate into bad cells. And Mm. it is, you know, and I've watched that happen with people. I've watched people not pursue their calling or give up on their dream I've had droughts where like resistance is just kicking my ass, you know, and it's the worst feeling in the world. You feel like you feel like your soul is constipated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It just it's a a sickness of the soul when you get into that. That's where the pain is coming. It's not in your body. It's in someplace else. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, addiction is like this demon because I wrestle with smoking cigarettes And like the cigarettes, it's like they, I started smoking cigarettes because it was a palliative measure because a girl broke my heart. And then I I know, right? Like the lamest. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Don't get me started, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) We agree with you. Yeah, she is a bitch. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and then later on, you know, it sort of became this thing that I used to help me focus. I would write a chapter and then I would go outside and have a cigarette and I would think and mentally edit, you know, and be like, oh, Uh I should change this word or I should Uh tweak this, you know, and it's kind of been like that for a long time. But what I noticed, it seems like the demon of addiction is a thing that like its usefulness or your usefulness to it will outlast its usefulness to you Mm. Uh you know like you'll stop needing it but baby it still needs you Uh (laughs) you know yeah that'll preach man yeah it's good i mean but you know you um you've been writing for a long time have you ever seen anybody in that situation where maybe they had an addiction like that that they wish they could quit and they were artistic parallel at the same time um no, I don't think so. But I do think that 
I, of course, I don't know that many people that are that are <laughs> artists or writers. I try to avoid knowing them, but I, I, <laughs> yep, I certainly do think that you know if you look at somebody like Keith Richards, yeah, where a lot of times it sort of goes back and forth. You know, you go you go through a creative period and then you kind of fall into another, you know, into an, addic an addictive, and then you come out of it again. You know, and I think it is to me it's about resistance. You know, just because you did something great on February 3rd doesn't mean on February 4th, you're not going to be, you know, completely screwed, you know, because <laughs> the demon is right there waiting for you, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I appreciate so, you saying but, that because the worst feeling in the world is when I get up early to write and I get a lot of tiny little things done unrelated to writing. And then I have to get ready and leave for work and I've gotten no writing done. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's that constipation feeling. Yeah. On the other hand, me. we got to give ourselves a little bit of a break. And like, Jonathan, it's okay if you smoke a cigarette every now and then, you know? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I was my permission to take a break. <laughs> I, used to, I, did, I used to do that too, all the time. Exactly. Yeah, you really? Yeah. 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 And you quit though, eventually. I, I think, did. Right? Eventually I did. Yeah. I mean, do you mind if I ask you how or what went into that or? Okay. Would you I, rather? I, well, actually, it's sort of a. Uh, I start. I got into um, uh, Hermetic philosophy and the Kabbalion. Have you ever heard of that stuff? Yeah. 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 And you know, you guys would know about this. Anyway, the the um, one of the principles of Hermetic philosophy is that there's no such thing as opposites. Everything like heat is not the opposite of cold, and courage is not the opposite of of uh, cowardice that they're all just points on a continuum and that the difference between the points on the continuum is the vibration mm -hmm. the vibrations that we feel at the time and so i said i was i was working at an ad agency at the time and i noticed that whenever i was really on the spot to have to get on my feet and perform i'd have to have a cigarette and my mm -hmm. and I, so i thought let me take my vibrations at that point, which are vibrations of fear, and I'll change them. I'll move those vibrations along the, the, the spectrum to vibrations of independence. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not dependent on a cigarette. And I just did it, Jonathan, I just did it three times. Like I wanted a cigarette and I just kind of did that, I did that vibration thing. And then I, again and again, the third by the third time I quit. Oh, However, so cool. I'll say this, like about five or six years later, I went back to smoking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. And I, and I tried that again and it didn't work. <laughs> and what did work, the, what's, where I stopped the second time was my niece, Meredith, who was like 10 years old at the time. I was visiting her dad, my brother. And I went outside to have a cigarette in the in the in the driveway, and she kind of came out and she said, "Uncle Steve, that's not good for you. You should stop." <laughs> and so I said, "I just said, okay, Meredith, if you want me to stop, I'll stop." And I oh, did that's, stop. That's really sweet. God only knows why. So those are my two times. That's so cool. Out Thank of the mouths of babes, man. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's I know. Uh, well, you know, there is. Um, uh, there is like a, a biblical concept, a New Testament concept that talks about that sort of thing where all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, you can do that. And it's not, you know, for you, 
maybe in that moment, in that season of life or that context, it's not a sin as we would call it, but it's like a spectrum. Like you talk about worst, worst, bad, neutral, good, better, <laughs> best, you know what uh-huh. I mean? And you can kind of yeah. be on yeah. that. Yeah. Did you, so when you talk about uh, shifting um, your vibrational state, do you mean in a, I'm, I'm making like such a Western translation out of this, a Western brain. Um, did you uh, do like cognitive reframing of that state you were in of like harnessing that energy and saying, no, I'm going to use this instead. Or was it just more no, of an I, innate? I definitely tried to change my vibrations, you know? Interesting. And I don't even know how I did Just mentally, I just said, I, I can feel how I feel right now. And it's the frequency is high. Yeah. So let me kind of tune that frequency down a little bit. Oh, that's cool. I don't even know how I did it, but I I did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, goals uh, were the only two things that ever helped me. I gave up cigarettes for Lent this year. And then uh, in the past, the only two times I've ever been able to give them up were when I was trying to get in shape and run for the Marines. Uh-huh. And then again, when I was trying to get on with uh, Metro PD. And uh, because I had to run and I hate running. I'm awful at it. Uh You you need like every bit of help you can get. And it's like almost a, it's like nine months, nine to 10 months each time, you know, but man, the second that rejection letter comes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, that's really good advice, Steve. That's uh, that's awesome to hear about. Thank you. All right. I want to ask you about, want to ask him about the, uh, oh, he's been doing on. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think we're what, like half an hour in. Yeah. We're, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's we're already the half hour mark. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know you wanted to talk about this and we wanted to really talk about this too. Um, let's talk about the fool's cap method. Okay. I love the fool's cap method. Uh, I did it for the first time today with a book that I've been working on Roman Coke nice. and the Sasquatch ellipse. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you, I've been working on this project for seven years, eight years now. And um, even though I'm 180 pages into the first draft and I got a a five, six foot wide dry erase board in the living Uh room filled with notes about Uh all these characters and plots, I'm stuck. I'm absolutely Uh stuck. And having this having this thought process codified on paper with the fool's cap method, I actually started thinking about it in a different way today. It started Uh to sort of crack the iceberg. And did you, Jonathan, did you get that from my stuff on Instagram? I watched your Instagram reels. Um, I love your Instagram reels on it. And then you had a couple of, um, it might have been Black Irish Books, actually. It might have been their account. But there were a couple of YouTube videos as well where you're talking Uh, about it that are several years old. But your Instagram videos. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Might want to call Sean. Must be Um, AI. (laughs) Maybe it was. I don't know. But your Instagram uh, reels and uh, your videos talking about the Fool's Cap method Uh, are insanely good. And I'd never even heard about it until I saw you make those videos. uh, so, um, yeah, so is there a specific place you or a question you'd like to? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Where, I was, where do you start? Nick with had the, all the questions. Well, I remember last time, uh, you recommended that when you're when you're doing the full scale method and you're approaching a story, that you should write the climax first. Yeah, that I should do. That you should do what? They should write the fu- the, the the climax, the big fight at the oh, end. Oh, right. Yeah, the conflict at the end. You should write that yeah. first. After you do that, though. What point to the fool's cat method do you go back to? Where do you where do you 
go from there? Because what if you don't even I, have a genre or a, or a really a theme, a narrative? Let me sort of, maybe I should just go back to the beginning and sort of describe what, what it is, you know, for yeah, people yeah, who have yeah. heard of this. First of all, this gentleman here, Norm Stahl, yes. is who died just a little while ago, is kind of an, a friend and mentor of mine. And he's the guy who taught me the fool's cap method. And it, this is how it came about. I know you guys know this, but I'll tell it for the. I was uh, working on my first novel many, many moons ago, and I was totally screwed. I lost. And I, Norm took me out to lunch, and he said, I told him my problem, and he reached into his bag, and he took out a, a yellow legal pad, and he said, he said, Steve, God made a single sheet of yellow fool's cap paper to be exactly the right length to hold the entire outline of a novel. And that was sort of a, a breakthrough thing for me because I was like creating these monstrous Bibles of, you know, 150 pages describing everything. So the, the thought of just doing it on one page, writing the whole thing out, you know, breaking it down into its constituent elements you know, and putting it on one page, one page only was a real breakthrough for me. I thought, oh, that I could do. I could figure that out, right? So since then, I've sort of evolved my own version of what's on that page, you know? And uh, so these are, uh, you know, here's here's my the thing that I did on uh, for um, yeah. for um, Instagram. Um, and I'll show you, I'll tell you what, you want me to go through all of these things? If, yeah. If, if you don't mind, if you'd like is, to, yeah. Is these are the sort of questions that you want you wanna that I use to ask myself about a project, a new project. This is at the very beginning of a project when you just have a germ of an idea and you're asking yourself, is this worth a shit? You know, do I like <laughs> right. this? Is this gonna work? Does is any, you know, and so you're trying to get a handle on what the on what the story is and if it's any good. And so, like like I was said, Nick, like at the very end, I have number 10 is the climax. But I don't know if you can see that. But I, I, yeah. I think it's a great place to start is how does this story end? Um, because so many times if we don't do that, we'll get like three quarters of the way through. and We'll go, well, I'm lost. I don't know how it ends. So if we're writing Moby Dick as an example. And we can say to ourselves, ah, in the final moment, Ahab harpoons Moby Dick and he becomes entangled in the lines and the whale and him are fighting that and the whale goes that takes him down with him. Right. And the ship sinks and everybody dies. If we know <laughs> that that's our climax. Right. And we can write that on a, on a yellow foolscap page by just saying Ahab and Moby Dick duel to the death. One line. If we know that, then we can start to work backwards from there and say, well, what do, how do we build up to that great moment? You know, so that's why I say this is an old screenwriting thing of always start at, the, at least know what the ending is. Don't yeah. you know now be having said that I have done many <laughs> things where I didn't know the end until <laughs> I got to it. In fact, one book of mine, Killing Rommel, which mm -hmm. is about. Uh, a British special forces unit fighting in the Af North African desert against Erwin Rommel, the desert fox, the great yep. German guy. 
I realized I, I was like two years into this, Jonathan. And I realized, you know, I don't have a single scene in this story with it has Rommel in it. I said, <laughs> don't we think we ought to, Steve, don't we, shouldn't we have a scene with Rommel? And that of course was the climax of the whole thing, which I should have had at the beginning. So anyway, I'll, I'll just go through these points and yeah. hope they're helpful to people. Yeah. The first thing on this, on this list is genre. Um, so I'll ask myself of a project that I have, what kind of a story is it? Is it a love story? Is it a Western? Is it a detective story? Is it a combination of science fiction and detective story like Blade Runner? And, and that's not so easy sometimes to know what the genre is, right? But once you've got the genre, it's a huge help because um, let's say we decide, like the book that you have there, A Man at Arms, that you're showing behind you there, is uh, it's set in around the time of the crucifixion, and it's about a badass one-man killing machine of the of the ancient world. And um, as I was trying to block this out, I asked myself, what genre is this? And I realized this is a Western. Yeah. So there are certain conventions to a Western. I'm sorry if I'm blathering on here That's too so long. Cool. I love it. Yeah, this is great. Okay, so I thought, what, what are the conventions of a Western? And one of them is that it takes place in a landscape beyond the law, whether it's Mad Max in a post-apocalyptic thing in Australia, or it's Clint Eastwood, you know, out in the, you know, in the, 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 the spaghetti Western things, right? Mm -hmm. So I said to myself, this story takes, a big part of this story takes place in the Sinai Desert. And I said, oh yeah, that's right. That's check that, number one, a, a wilderness beyond the law. Another aspect of a Western is that it has a, usually a male hero who is a, gun, a gunslinger. Basically, if it's a, a samurai movie is also a Western. Okay. A lot of detective stories are also Westerns. And he's a man who goes to violence as the first, as the, you know, default. So I said, okay, my hero, my man at arms hero, he's that kind of a guy. So good, that's great. So I know we've got two things there. Then another thing of a, a convention of a Western is there's almost always a vulnerable character, yep. maybe a woman, maybe a, a young child that somehow touches this bad ass's heart. Yeah. And he comes to the defense of that. Like in Unforgiven, it's the prostitutes that the Clint Eastwood character works. In Shane, it's the young boy Played, played by Brandon DeWilda, et cetera, et cetera. So I have this young girl in the story, da, 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 da. And I also know in a Western that the final scene has always got to be a shootout between the bad guy and the good guy, right? That mm -hmm. has to be the final scene. So now as I'm starting to put all these things together, I've got some answers here. Like number three is hero and villain. So now I ask myself, okay, who's the hero? Who's the villain? Now, if we go back to Moby Dick, ah, the hero is Ahab and the villain is the white whale. Or in, in my story, Man-at-Arms, the hero is my Man-at-Arms guy, Telamon, mm -hmm. and the bad guys are the Romans. So I've got that. Now, beyond that, I know in the climax that a storytelling principle is hero and villain clash to the death. 
So I go, okay, now I'm starting to put the story together a little bit, you know, in, in the most vague terms. Um, another thing, number two up here, Nick, is what I call act one, act two, act three. Um, I'm a big believer in three act structure. And so, okay, so let's say, again, let's say it's Moby Dick. I ask myself, okay, act one, Ahab and the Pequod set out after Moby Dick. Act two, Ahab and the Pequod, the ship, chase Moby Dick around the world, searching for him. Act three, they find him and they duel to the death. That's all we need. You know, we write that out on one line on this yellow page. And now I can say to myself, okay, there may be a lot of little incidents and scenes in there, but that's a pretty good arc, you know? Um, or if it's, uh, if it's the searchers, you know, it's the young girl gets stolen by the Comanches. Act two, John Wayne goes after him. Act three, John Wayne catches him, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I, for me, trying to evaluate the story, I can ask myself, if I'm a reader or a moviegoer, and that's the story, am I going to be interested? And, you know, I can say, yeah, I think I will be interested. <laughs> so anyway, um, continuing on, great. I know this is exhaustive detail, but you guys love asked it. me, so I'm going to give it to you. Our people are going to love this, yeah. Steve, truly. Number four is what it says narrative device. Now, what that means is, again, this is a question you got to answer. Who tells the story? Yeah. Is it the uh, the omniscient author, like in most thrillers, where you cut back and forth to scene, scene, scene? Or is it a particular character? You know, and, and um, for instance, in To Kill a Mockingbird, the narrative device is the girl Scout, the daughter of Atticus Finch right? Who's nine years old or eight years old, whatever she is. She's the one who's telling the story and everything. And we have to ask ourselves, is this the right way? Like if we were, if we were writing To Kill a Mockingbird, we might say, maybe it's third person omniscient author telling the story, or maybe it's Atticus Finch telling the story. Um, maybe it's Tom Robinson telling the story, right? We sort of have to ask ourselves, what works, right? What's going to be, what fits in with what are, th and, and uh, um, so anyway, na that's what narrative device is. Like in The Great Gatsby, it's the character of Nick Carraway, who's like the friend of Gatsby, but has certain distance from him. Mm -hmm. In um, uh, Catcher in the Rye, it's Holden Caulfield mm -hmm. telling the story in the first person, his interior monologue, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, you really can't write word one until you know who's telling the story. Absolutely. Right? What's the narrative device? And then, um, oh, to get even more complicated here, like let's go back to Scout in, in um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. It's not Scout as a nine-year-old girl telling the story. It's Scout as a grown woman remembering what it was like that summer mm -hmm. and telling the story through the young, her younger self's eyes. And yeah. why is that important? And why did that work? Because Atticus Finch had to be seen as a hero, as a knight in shining armor, 
And who better to do that than his daughter, who adores him and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's narrative device. Now, number five, right under narrative device, I have narrative device number two. And that is, if we know who's telling a story, who are they telling it to? Ah. Which will describe kind of the tone of voice that somebody might take. You know, for instance, mm -hmm. in The Sun Also Rises, Hemingway's character is Jake Barnes, who is basically kind of Hemingway himself, right? Who's telling the story. He's the narrator of the story. We see everything through his eyes. But who is he telling it to? He's kind of telling it to us, the readers, as if we're friends of his, who are going to get it, right? And when he describes somebody in the story that he's kind of looking down on or making fun of or, or, or seeing through, his tone of voice to us is, we're going to get it. You know, mm -hmm. let me tell you what an asshole this guy is. And you guys, you're going to think the same way, right? Or <laughs> yeah. so, and that's kind of the, and Holden Caulfield, sort of his tone of voice is very similar. It's like he's talking to a buddy of his, like, I think the book starts something like this. If you really want to know about it, you're probably going to want to know about my lousy childhood and how I was brought up. But I really don't care about that. You can see how the tone of who he's talking to pulls pulls you in and and sets up that that whole story so number one who tells the story number two who 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 are they telling it to then you know we only have a few more left here so that's anyway. great that's great uh, number six on this thing is theme yeah and this is one of the deepest of all and hardest of all things and that is the question of what is this damn thing about um, you know, what is the story about? Like if we're, if it's, um, all quiet on the Western front, you could say, oh, it's about world war one, but that's, that's not the theme. That's the subject. The theme is really about mankind's need to, for war for some, you know, and the folly of that, that yeah. somebody who has never been in a war thinks, oh, this is going to be great. Our country's going to kick ass and I'm going to come home pinned with medals. And then they get into it and they go, oh my God, what, what happened? You know, yeah. this is real. That's the theme, you know, the endlessness of war and the horror of war. Or if we go to, um, back to To Kill a Mockingbird, its theme is about, um, bigotry and prejudice and and the judging of our fellow human beings by etc cetera, etc cetera. um moby dick the theme is the kind of monstrousness of nature including human nature including ahab's madness yeah. you know against you know so once we know the theme then we we're 99 of the way through um uh because going back again to climax at the very end, a principle of storytelling is hero and villain clash in the climax over the issue of the theme. Yeah. Um, so I can give you many examples, but you guys could you guys know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Um, number seven, 
this is, is also really important, inciting incident. And it's kind of really important to know what incident in the story, where does the story start? Most times stories have a period at the top, as you guys know, the setup, Yeah. right? Where we kind of establish the world a little bit. It's Dorothy, she's in Kansas. You know, she has a little dog named Toto. There are a lot of crazy people around. It's not, you know, and then the moment when the cyclone comes in and picks her up, that's when the story starts, right? Yeah. So we have to we have to know that. Um, in the movie Rocky, the inciting incident in the first Rocky is when Apollo Creed, if you remember, looks he he his his uh, the guy he was going to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world is injured and drops out. So Apollo gets out the book of of local fighters. He looks through, he sees a guy called the Italian Stallion, Rocky Balboa, and he says, this is it. I'm going to fight this chump. I'm going to give him a chance at the title. That's the, the inciting incident, right? At that moment, the story starts. Now, um, two things we further know. I'm going way deep into this. I know. I love it. Yes. Two things we know about the inciting incident is number one, the climax is embedded in the inciting incident. For instance, yep. when Rocky gets picked by Apollo Creed 26 minutes into the movie, if we ask what's the climax going to be, we know, oh, it's Rocky fighting Apollo Creed for the heavyweight title. And as we're watching the movie, we go, oh, that's exciting. I can't wait to see that, you know? Yeah. Um, or in uh, the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, if you remember, he gets his daughter is kidnapped, and somehow the bad guys phone him up. This is the inciting incident, mm -hmm. you know, about 15 minutes into the movie. And he says to them that famous thing, I have a set of skills that are very dangerous. <laughs> and if I catch up to you, if you uh -huh. let my daughter go, I won't do anything. But if you don't, I'm going to catch up with you and you're going to regret it, right? Yeah. And the guys say to him, good luck, and they hang up, right? <laughs> and now we know the climax is embedded in that moment. Because yeah. at that moment, we know, ah, Liam Neeson is going to catch up to these guys, <laughs> and he's going to kick the shit out of them, right? And as we're <laughs> yep. watching, we go, ooh, I can't wait to see that. So uh, anyway, that, so that's one aspect of an inciting incident. And when we're thinking about our story, we go, we ask ourselves, do we have an inciting incident? Is there a scene where something starts where Luke Skywalker decides he is going to go off with Obi-Wan Kenobi? Mm -hmm. And, you know, do we have mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. And if we do, we go, oh, okay, great. If we don't, we're in trouble. We got to come up with something. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing about the inciting incident is the hero acquires his or her intention at that point. Yeah. Like with Luke Skywalker, he now intends to fight against the Empire, and to find out who his father, who is a Jedi Knight, is. That's his thing. With uh, Rocky, in the inciting incident, his intention is to train and to fight, right? And Liam Neeson's intention is to find the bad guys and get his daughter back. And that kind of, that intention carries us through all the way. So we, again, it's sort of a checkpoint where we ask ourselves, does our hero inquire her intention at this moment? And if she doesn't, then we better rethink it. Um, two to go. Number eight right. is a pretty easy one. Setting. Yeah. Right. Where 
and when and whatever will this story work um like i said if it's a western we know the setting has to be a landscape beyond the law right um uh let's say game of thrones we know that let's say we're going to where are we going to set this we say to ourselves oh i've got this great idea it's about there's going to be dragons there's going to be you know, the wall, there's going to be the wildlings on the other, there's going to be the army of the dead. Oh, this is great. And we ask us, well, where? It's like a heavenly realms, you know, Jonathan. It's like, where are we going to set this? And I'm sure that George R. R. Martin thought, should I set it on another planet? Mm -hmm. Should I set it, you know, whatever? And he finally sort of came up with a, a kind of an imaginary era around the time of the War of the Roses, right? It was sort of far enough into the past that we we basic viewers don't really know anything about it but not so far that it's you know and then we can have castles we can have dragons etc cetera, etc cetera. so we got to pick you know a setting that's exact that that's going to work um and the last thing that i have here number nine is mm, if i got yeah. this here the all is lost moment yeah yeah and this is a, a, this comes from screenwriting. It's sort of a uh, a staple of screenwriting that about three quarters of the way through the movie, or a little bit farther, maybe the hero comes up to a moment uh, where it's all is lost, right? Where um, he or she just thinks, "I've done every, I've thrown everything I can at this enemy, and I just can't defeat it." And and at that point. Immediately after that, the hero has some kind of a breakthrough, you know, and it's really good to have, you almost have to have that moment somewhere. This again, kind of Jonathan, it's a little bit like addiction. In fact, I, I, a lot of times we come out of addiction when we hit an all is lost moment. The rock you know, bottom. We wake up in the gutter with a bottle of Jack Daniels beside us and we say, <laughs> my goodness, I've got a problem here. Yeah. So, um, an example of an all is lost moment in, in Rocky, um, the first Rocky. The night before the fight, the big fight, Rocky's in bed with Adrian and he can't sleep. And he gets up, gets dressed, and he goes down to the arena where the fight's going to happen tomorrow. And the arena is empty. All the seats are empty, but the ring is there. The big photos or pictures on the wall of Apollo, of Rocky, you know, and he just kind of, his face just falls when he sees this as he's sort of hit with the reality of what this is, right? He's been training, he's been running through the streets of Philadelphia, everybody's kind of cheering him, you know, and he thought, and so he goes back home to Adrian, and this is his all is lost moment. He says, who am I kidding? I'm never going to beat this guy. This guy's going to make a mess, he's going to break my head open, you know, and da 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 And there always is a kind of a breakthrough moment right after that. And in for Rocky's case, he has a, a, what I thought is the best speech in the whole movie. He says to Adrian something like, you know, it really don't matter if this guy opens my head. All I want to do is go the distance with him. If that bell rings at the end of, and I'm still standing, and he says, no one's ever gone the distance with Creed before. But if I can go that distance, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Yeah. So 
that those two things, the all is lost moment and the epiphanal moment afterwards are really critical to know. And if we know all that stuff before we've started or even as we're working, that that really gives us a lot of confidence. I think we can say, you know what? I've got a real story here. This, this is going to work. I know what the sign, it's almost like having a map from New York to San Francisco where we know, oh, okay, I'm going to go through Chicago. Then I'm going to here. I'm going to go to here, to here, to here. So anyway, that's, that's the fool's cap method in one fell swoop. Um, that's awesome. Uh, I don't always do it. And a lot of times I will do it sort of as I go along. You know, I might have the answer oh, to like three of these things at the start, but I'll, but I'll keep asking the questions, you know, and little by little, I'll kind of fill it in. Anyway, that's the fool's cap method. That's one thing that I seem to have picked up from watching, you know, several of your videos about this and other things like it is, you know, you seem to be a uh, an advocate for just just do it. Just start doing it at some point. You know, like, yeah, I am. I am an advocate of that, which is sort of the opposite of the fool's cap method. You know, <laughs> a little bit, like, right? You know, the fool's cap method, you're really blocking it out. You're you're planning it all out. But sometimes it's also good to just plunge right in. But even if you do plunge right in, and I do that quite a bit, I keep going back to these 10 points and a few other points and, mm -hmm. and sort of like shooting an x-ray through your body. You know, are we are we OK on this one? You know? Are we okay yeah. on that? Do we have, or another analogy is it's it's a little like a like a pilot uh, do, going through his checklist before he takes off. You know, yes. Do we have the flaps flaps oh, down? You know, yeah. Are all those things working? You know, fuel line is it? Whatever they do, mm -hmm. yeah, you know. And once we know all those things, then we can feel more confident as we take off. Yeah. Well, and yours is so. Um, I mean, I saw Sean had one from StoryGrid. Mm -hmm. And his is pretty extensive, you know, and I it's, bet it is. I, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But I mean, yours is it's actionable and it still is very impactful. It's concise. Um, and it really, really helps organize in a way that lays a foundation. Like you say, even if you don't have all of them, you know, if you have some of them on there enough to where you can start working, it gets you going. And, you know, it, I didn't figure out the theme to Empyrean falling until I was almost done with it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that's very common, you know, that, right. Yeah. Um, I, I know we're, we're creeping up on uh, time here. I have so many questions and things like, what about gates of fire and the fool's cap method for this? Like I could ask you, but I know Nick has some really good questions, so I'll defer to him and shut up. Well, <laughs> I, for the sake of time, I have one, I'll only, ask you one question related to we've been talking about the fool's cat method and, and this largely relates to telling a story a fiction a novel yes yes but with uh put your ass where your heart wants to be um uh, the war of art uh, do the work um is there a is there something like the fool's cat method that you would employ to organize your thoughts and get ready for the writing of this what do you use in in, in the case of a, a of a nonfiction? Ah, that's a great question, Nick. And I, I'm, I do think that you can apply many of the same principles to this, to this thing. Not that I always do, but you can. <laughs> like, um, let's say, let's say it's the war of art, and we're and we're trying to block it out. And you ask yourself, uh, what's the genre? 
Okay, the genre is what I would call, what Sean would call big idea nonfiction, right? A one idea thing, kind of like what um, Malcolm Gladwell does, you know, uh, the tipping point or something like that. Sure. So yeah, so I would say, um, who's the hero of the War of Art? A nonfiction with no characters. Who's the hero? The hero is the reader. What is the all is lost moment? The all is lost moment happened to the reader before he or she picked up the book. And that moment was when he or she said, I wish I was a writer, dancer, filmmaker, whatever, but I can't defeat my own bad you know, juju. Yep. I'm defeated. My dream is broken. I'm never going to make it. So, and then what's the epiphanal moment? The epiphanal moment after that is read this freaking book and you'll, <laughs> you'll learn what to do. Right. Uh -huh. um, and narrative device. Who's telling th this story? Me, me as myself, Steve as myself, or as a, a sort of a version of myself, a little bit more like a boot camp, you know, drill instructor version yeah, yeah. of myself, mm -hmm. take no prisoners version of myself. Uh, but that's who is telling the story. Um, and who, who am I telling it to? I'm telling it to the hero. The hero is the reader, right? I'm like, I'm like Obi-Wan Kenobi telling this to Luke Skywalker. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of, you know, now kind of dictates, Nick, it's sort of the tone of voice that, that I want to take, which is kind of a, no bullshit, you know, let's get straight to the points and then get it into it. And, um, and what's the inciting incident? Like in the very beginning of the War of Art, it sort of says something like, uh, have you ever bought a treadmill and brought it home and found it gathered dust in the attic? You know, have you ever, you know, tried to quit smoking? And, you know, then you know, you know, what you know what the problem is. And, <laughs> and then the villain is resistance with a capital R. Yeah. And we introduce the villain right at the start where we say, you know, more people have you know bitten the dust, lost their dreams, gone you know because of this than anything else in the world. So in other words, I think you can apply this concept to a TED talk if yeah. you were doing a TED talk, or you know pretty much pretty much anything. The principles of storytelling apply to nonfiction as well as as well as fiction. Even That's though you good. don't literally have a hero, you know, literally have a villain. There is the equivalent in there somewhere. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because the reader is buying a book like that because they want to apply it, they, meaning yeah. they want to become the hero in their own story. That's why yeah. they're buying the book. Yeah. In fact, pretty much all self-help books pr are probably like that, right? Yeah. yeah. The hero is the reader, and the all is lost moment happened before they picked up the book. So They good. said, mm -hmm. I'm in trouble. for. Let me read this book and see if it can help me run a marathon or get in shape or whatever. Yeah. And even if you don't think you're in trouble, you may be in trouble, you know, like, yeah. I mean, I never felt like I was necessarily in trouble big time um, before I read the war of art, but reading the war of art actually showed me how much trouble I was in. Well, this is what, <laughs> this is what, you know, Christians go through every time they read the Bible. 
<laughs> read the Bible, they're like, I'm in trouble. I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah. My soul is in trouble. Yeah. yeah. I, need to, I need to repent. Well, and you know, I, I especially love your um, discussion about the all is lost moment and the epiphanal moment that follows. I mean, it's no different in the story of Jesus with the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, exactly. It's right yeah. there. I mean, that is such a that's one of the cool things about a lot of these books is they they touch on these like archetypal um, threads that run through yeah. just like, you yeah. know, it's the vibration of like yeah. our souls in a lot of ways. Ooh, that gave me chills when you said that, John. <laughs> but it was like at the moment, right, is when Jesus says, let this cup pass from my lips. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. That was his moment. Yeah. 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 And then he sort of sucked it up and said, okay, I've got to do it. You know, yep. not my will, but yeah. it'll be done. And then here comes Peter swinging a sword. <laughs> Peter's my guy, by the way, because like he's kind of dumb, but he like wants to do the right thing, but he doesn't know how. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, know? Peter's excellent because his is the ultimate redemption story. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 In a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. He's the, he's the second chance guy. Yes. Yeah. It's like, you just yeah. give me one more shot. You know, just cut me, cut me. I'm still good. <laughs> just cut me, Mick. Yeah, just cut me, baby. Um, I I have a question about fiction versus nonfiction, but I wanted to I'm make good. sure. I'm good. You go. Um, Nick mentioned, you know, how the fool's cap method applies to nonfiction, and I was after reading Government Cheese, a memoir. I decided, you know what? This reminds me of some of my old nonfiction that I wrote. And so I dusted off some of my nonfiction, a camping trip with this Joker and, uh -huh. you know, a, a trip to Prague in 2005 and another vacation with a bunch of girls in a bluegrass band out in Colorado that I went on. And Ooh, I like that one. <laughs> I, it, it, it was it's reminiscent. I wish I could write like like that today. It was written in 2015. I must have been reading a lot of you. I don't know. No. Um but I'll tell you, I noticed when I was reading over these things that I hadn't looked at in forever, it was like, man, so in some of these, I told the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then in others, I like totally whitewashed the bad mm -hmm. stuff. And I think in some of them, like in the whitewashing, when it was because maybe my audience or the emotion that I was trying to get out of it required that in my head. I just wanted to ask you, you know, how do you approach nonfiction versus fiction is it different and like do you apply different kinds of filters to your nonfiction that you don't really apply to your fiction mm. i i i don't think i do approach it differently really okay um, now of course i i think i've really only written other than the books about creativity like the war of art i've only really done two nonfiction books and that's government cheese and the lion's gate yeah. And uh, and I thought of both of them, you know, through the lens of all of this, you know, what's the genre? Who's the hero? You know, as particularly in government cheese, the sort of the question was, what am I leave? What do I want to leave out? Yeah, exactly. Because you know, um, and I want to leave a lot out. <laughs> and and because of the question of theme, right. what is this about? And we have to stay with the theme all the way through, you know, and I don't, I, I don't want to go down some other alley just because something actually happened. Doesn't mean I have to tell it in this book. Yeah. So, um, and I definitely looked at it as act one, act two, act three. What is it about? Who's the hero? Who's the villain? 
so on and so forth. That's good. I want to real quick, just going back to narrative device, and you were talking about those different those different works uh, and who was actually the one telling the story in the story. Uh, and my family and I just got done reading Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. And the narrative device in that is of Jim Hawkins. Up until the point where Jim leaves the uh, shack to go sneak out to the ship and cut the anchor lines. When he leaves to go do that, it's really odd. The narrative changes. All of a sudden, it's Dr. Livesey telling mm. the story about the battle with the pirates. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a little jarring. Years. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it is, yeah. And then Jim comes, and when Jim comes back, it changes back to Jim's narrative for the rest really? of the book, where he describes what he was doing while he was away. Wow. Huh. And um, uh, why did uh, Robert Louis Stevenson do that? Yeah, I don't right? know. I don't know. I think ah. he wanted to be in two places at the same time because there were two major things moving ah. the story along that had to be explained, but maybe he felt like he was locked into telling it from Jim's perspective and had ah. to force it maybe. So people ah. understood when Jim came back why things were the way they were. Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it was really strange. You oh. know, Glenn Cook's uh, Chronicles of the Black Company kind of did that. It's like this dark fantasy this kind of low fantasy uh glenn cook was a a navy veteran from the 80s and uh and his books are really cool because all the characters they don't talk like fantasy characters they're just like everyman you know Uh as Uh it's like you could tell he was in the military because like all these mercenaries in this thing called the black company they're like you know they're just dudes doing a job you know and uh and they're great it's so much fun and the first book is it's like that it's like it's all told first person perspective you know by the uh the physician of the legion the black company and then in the second book all of a sudden he kind of reverts back to like that standard fantasy trope of having multiple points of view from multiple Uh. characters you know and you kind of are just like "Mm, you had it you know what i mean (laughs) like It was cool, and then uh, we're back to this again. Uh, oh, okay. So, in uh, other words, it didn't it didn't work, Jonathan. Is that what you're I, saying? It really, yeah, not for me. I, now, it's totally subjective. I got a good uh-huh. friend who introduced me to him, and he loved that because he found the other characters to be compelling and more vulnerable. Mm. But for me, I was like, man, I like just like this. I know it's a little one dimensional, but like this is a cool vibe that we have going with this mm. one guy because he was the chronicler of the Legion. Mm. He like. Yeah. He was the analyst, you know, huh. and so I guess the bottom line is you can break rules, but it's you have to know what the rules are, you know. Yeah, yeah. be able to yeah. say to yourself, "Okay, I'm going to break this one now." Yeah, yeah, and have a good reason to break them too. Yeah, um, but with I was always really impressed with Gates of Fire's narrative device because it's you know it's the slave Ziones. Uh, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah, who knows? I don't know. Who knows? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair. All right. I always get my Greek gut check from Steve. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and he's one of the only survivors of the Battle of Thermopylae, and he is giving his accounting of his experience, you know, telling uh, King Xerxes about the Spartans. So it becomes like this really cool first-person reminiscent. And um, I noticed in doing that myself, in my attempts to do that in my fiction, it becomes very restrictive in what you can tell because everything you're doing 
is through that perspective. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a problem where you started doing that and then you realized that the story maybe needed a different narrative device along the way somewhere? Well, actually, you know, like in Tides of War. Yeah. The story, there's actually three, even four narrators, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, for that exact reason, Jonathan, you know, like really, a certain person, one guy has access to one. He was at a certain place at a certain time and he could tell you that story. But then he, another person had to be brought in to be in a different place at a different time. But I, what I tried to do was kind of like Russian dolls, make those narratives nest inside one another so yeah. that the one guy was telling the story he was telling it to guy number two mm-hmm. who was then telling it to his grandson and so it they all sort of hopefully fit together but yeah definitely one character did not could not tell that whole story yeah so and I'm yet sure it's... writers have done 20 characters and made it work you know somewhere probably yeah way better writers than me so (laughs) i don't know um but you know and even when you talk about climax i think back to the virtues of war about alexander the great uh which is um, one of your best written historical fiction books and there's that scene in the end you know where it uh where telamon the mercenary captain telamon is there and he he's departing to go study with the swamis you know, and before he goes, he shakes hands with Alexander, you know, and, and he pulls him in. He's like, come with me, you know, and Alexander, you like he has that moment where he thinks maybe I can. Maybe. You can. Yeah. And then he <laughs> breaks, you know, and yeah. he's like, no, I got to, you know, the army is calling me, you know, and he hops up on the horse and there's a valedictory look between them, you know, and the wind sweeps his cape and and he rides off, you know, to this <laughs> this theme that, that he's changed to you know right jonathan where i switch narrators at the very yeah. end like the story starts in alexander's voice and he's telling he's to a young page of his that's his nephew i'm going to tell you my story and then at the very end that last chapter because alexander couldn't really tell that story right so it sort of switches to the to the young boy the young page in reminiscence mm-hmm. and he's telling it in the past so that he so but it, yeah so you can do that you know it does work and it's not jarring in that case because as the reader you know alexander like like they say alexander can't tell that part yeah he's you know? yeah, yeah right yeah you got to have that outside look and uh yeah so you're right yeah i guess you can break the rules if you know what the rules are <laughs> so. and- hey steve uh before we go um i do this with all our guests now uh, our motto is take up the broken sword and strike down the darkness real quick before you go any words of wisdom to help our uh, audience strike down the darkness <laughs> yeah i don't know i think you know i don't know this it's like i always say you know uh, well we started off talking about addiction right mm-hmm. and you know this racket of following your calling following your vocation whatever it is ain't easy and there, there are a lot of pitfalls along the way, including addictions of various kinds. So just sort of uh, take up the broken sword of your father <laughs> and, you know, kick some ass. You know, that's what yeah. you have to do. Kick some ass. That's right. <laughs> Stephen Pressfield, Uncle Steve, thank you so much. Hey, it's great talking to you guys, Nick and Jonathan. You know, you're my favorite nephews. You're our favorite <laughs> uncle, your baby. favorite uncle. <laughs> All right. Love you, Uncle Steve. Have a good see one. You. All right. Bye-bye. See you next time. See you next Sounds time. Great. Okay.
Bye. Hey, if you guys have been enjoying this interview and you'd like to hear the rest of it, including some really down and dirty stuff that we're not allowed to say here on YouTube, uh, head over to patreon.com forward slash the goslings. We'd love to have your support there and share exclusive content with you. That's right. Keep it cool. And remember, these are interviews that strike down the dark. They do indeed strike down That's the right. darkness. They strike down all the darkness. That's right. Strike it down hard. So hard. So hard.